You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, a couple things this morning. We're wrapping up this morning uh, with what we've been doing, which has been just looking at the greatness of God. And uh, Sure, if you don't mind, that'd be great. Um, so uh, we're, we went last week, we started with the grandiose, the, the, the first week we started looking at the stars, we then the second week we began to look at even more of the stars and kind of how we compare in size with the stars, uh, which I think gave us a really big, great glimpse of how big God is when he said in Genesis that he created um, the heavens and the earth and all the expanse of the earth and just how grand and wonderful that was. But then at the same time we looked at day six where Jesus, or where God uh, created uh, male and female in his image and what was going on in the midst of uh, the creation of male and female all the way down to the molecular side of things we're going to kind of pick up in the molecular side of things today and uh, finish up with uh, just looking at that and then going to transition just so you kind of have the lay of the land for today uh, we'll transition to some of the questions that were asked last week which was what do we do with this now what do we do now that we have this how do we uh, if you will use the term, apologetically talk to somebody about uh, faith through uh, the use of science and, and astronomy and the various other things that we've looked at. So that's kind of our, our, our lay of the land for today, if you will. So um, last week we, we left off, if you remember, with Psalm 33, looking at Psalm 33, 18. I'll just kind of read it and reiterate just a little bit. It says, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine, which obviously for us means something because it's a promise that God has given us that as children of his, as creations of his, uh, he literally, as we said last week, holds us in his hands. He holds us that song, that children's song that we uh, so often remember. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. In How true that is. That he's got it all in his hands and he, uh, the, the psalmist is, is recognizing that for those who fear the Lord, uh, our hope is in his unfailing love and he is sure to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. And so that promise is huge. And what we saw last week in just some of the molecular things of how small molecules can be and, and the embryo inside of a mother's womb, uh, tying in Psalm 139 and, and what it means when he says he knew us from our, our mother's womb, uh, was remarkable to think about how well he knew us and, and the amount of DNA that he was forming in the midst of a mother's womb, in the midst of a child. And as they grow up and as they, um, as they become fully formed in the mother's womb and are birthed, there is some uh, 70 billion uh, cells in the body. And 50,000 of them die every three seconds and 50,000 more new ones are made every three seconds. So just the splendor and the magnificence of God is just incredible. And so I want to kind of put the put the tail end of that on kind of the left hook, if you will, of this little talk of that before we transition into some apologetics. And that is um, a lot of people would ask the question, how do we know God is in the midst of these things? How do we know uh, some of some have come up and asked me afterwards, you know, you've got all these scientific things from the Big Bang Theory to uh, molecular explosions to all these things that, te- that 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 people will say this is how 
earth was formed. This is how the heavens and the stars were formed. And the reality for us is that we know, uh, and there's, there are multiple ways that we can kind of dialogue with someone about those things. And we can, again, if that's interesting to you, we can talk about that in just a minute. But just from a standpoint of using and seeing and understanding what God and how God is working in us, there's one more thing that I think is the beauty of how God works. And that is, there's, uh, if we dig a little bit deeper, there's a small protein molecule that is actually known as the glue that holds the body together. Now, maybe you've heard this, maybe you hadn't heard this. It's a, it's a substance called laminin in the body. And laminin is a, a cell adhesive molecule that actually, um, that actually holds us, holds the cells together and actually directs the cells to do what they're supposed to do. And so when laminin is in its full function, it's telling a cell that's been reproduced, hey, you're a cell that goes over here for this purpose. And you're a cell that goes over here. And so laminin exists as a protein cell adhesion molecule that really is kind of the director, if you will, of our body, uh, the glue that holds us together. And when I first heard about uh, this protein molecule for the first time, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Uh, I actually started Googling it to find, is this really real? Is somebody making this up? Uh, this seems too crazy to, uh, to really be true. Is this really the way God formed us and put us together and, and how he used this cell adhesion molecule? So cells, just a couple of little things before I show you a picture because I want to really uh, get, you, get you anticipating what this looks like if you've never seen it because it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Um, but it, a, a cell adhesion molecule, cells are organized into somewhere between a dozen and 60,000 proteins in the body. In fact, we don't really know exactly how many cell proteins are in the body because they're always kind of dying and reproducing and dying and growing. And so there's, we haven't been able to really kind of pinpoint each person has this many, but we know it can be as many as 60,000. And so uh, cells organize into certain molecular structures. We know that, and that determines what role they play. So again, laminin is about kind of playing the, the quarterback, if you will, of, hey, you've been produced and this is what you're supposed to do. So the cell adhesion molecule, uh, laminin, uh, organizes and tells each cells. Laminin was described by one molecular biologist as this. He said it's the rebar of the human body. If you've ever worked with concrete, you've watched them lay con or um, pour concrete. There's a, a rebar, which is metal, basically metal mesh that sits in there to make the concrete stronger so that it doesn't crack as easy, so that it has a higher weight limit to it. The steel bars that they put in concrete are the equivalent of laminin in our body. And then you click on the images of laminin and you think, well, that's all fine and good. Of course, there's going to be a cell adhesive molecule that's directing and playing quarterback in our body. But what does it look like? And so uh, I bet you want to see, right? You want to see what laminin looks like if you've never seen laminin. Here's what laminin looks like. There's a molecular uh, picture of what laminin looks like. Does that look familiar at all? Yeah, it should. It looks like the, the shape of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is, it is God where, you know, you don't think that God's sovereign in all of this, right? Uh, he knows exactly what he's doing. And so if you were to diagram laminin, this is what this cell adhesion molecule would look like. And so I thought, well, that's, that's all cool. That's a good molecular image of laminin. What does it really look like inside the body? Does it really look like this inside the body? If you go inside the body... There's what an actual uh, laminin cell looks like. 
the stuff holding us together as human beings is the perfect shape of a cross. It's holding us together. How can we know that God is holding us together? There's a cross looming over history. In the same way that we saw the cross in the black hole, we see the cross in the very things that make us up. So what else is left for us to understand of this grandeur and greatness of God and the intricate details that God has designed us with? It brings us to worship Him, which is, I want to look at Colossians chapter... Well, where'd it go? There it is, Colossians chapter 1. This is just kind of, again, bringing us all together here. For by Him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There's the invisible cellular things that we don't know what's going on whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were created by him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together to know that God knew exactly what he was doing when he spoke it into existence without lifting a finger he spoke creation into existence he spoke human beings into existence and in the midst of all that worked mightily among us god doesn't always change the circumstances but he's always in the circumstances that's what we recognize in colossians that by him all things were created and in him all things are held together now, before we go into some apologetics for the last few minutes, any thoughts on that? Any questions on, uh, again, that was just kind of the, the final conclusion for what we've been talking about, both large and small, that, that we see God moving and working in us. What yeah. Well, I think we can uh, we can make a pretty uh, hard, conclusive uh, decision that God had something to do with that one. Uh, that that God was in the orchestrating of, hey, I'm going to put this cell inside the body that's going to, and it's going to have my fingerprints as though the and all the cells do, but this particular one's going to have my fingerprint on it even before Jesus has come. This, this wasn't just a new, hey, all of a sudden human beings have the shape of a cross in their, in their body. This was from the beginning. We can look back as far as we can in the DNA and see that this laminin existed when God said, hey, I'm going to make man in, my, in, in our image. Male and female, I'm going to create them. Seems pretty... Uh, now, if you were a, um, an atheist and you're looking at laminin, you're going... And this is the Richard Dawkins of the world kind of guys that are going, well, clearly some molecule erupted and that is somehow by chance this cell exists in our body after multiple explosions that happened over time. And then one of those molecular explosions then became human beings. And just so happens we've got a cell in our body that has the fingerprint that looks like the cross of Jesus. They'll dismiss that in a heartbeat, by the way. Uh, any good atheist would try to argue their way out of it. Eventually, though, what I find in talking with atheists is that if you keep pushing, you know, I said something at the very beginning of our class that if you doubt my, my seminary professor that said, always doubt your doubts. 
if you push that, that, that concept on an atheist by asking, and my kids are great at this, every kid is great at this, why? You all right? I tell my kids to do something, why? Eventually, you know, and I, I vowed to be that parent that wasn't going to say just because I said do it. <laughs> I would try my best to say, here's why, here's why, here's why. And eventually, they'll just keep pushing. And you finally just have to say, because I said to. Just do it because I need you to do it, you know. I hate giving that, but after a while, you just want to go. And that's, I feel like in an argument with an atheist, and I've experienced this in arguments with atheists, that if you keep asking the question, why or how? How? How did that happen? How did this happen? If if we got to the if if in fact the Big Bang were legitimate and something happened in, in science, how did it happen? How did that happen? How did that happen? You keep pushing back further and further, and then eventually you will get to a place, even the Dawkins of the world will get to a place where they say, Well, I suppose there had to be something that created. Dawkins is on record saying that. He'll go back all the way to these small, minute molecules and say, they expanded, they blew up, they did this, they did this, and then finally, I don't know where the first one came from. I suppose someone had to create it. So even if that's your worldview, you got to get to a place where you go, well, somebody, something, God himself orchestrated. Good question. Yeah, do you have a question? Well, I've always had a problem with dismissing the science sure. as, a, as a science kind of person. <clears throat> and I heard, this is years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was being interviewed uh, for some sort of a special, who was sort of poked at by the, uh, by the interviewer about this, that, and the other thing. And he said, and this is an answer I, I could hang on to, um, he said, you're talking about the body or the, the physical part of, of life. I'm talking about the soul. So uh, I could put much of this in the context of the soul. Yeah. And that's what was comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. That's all. Yeah, I certainly think that's the case. I don't think, though, in, in my study, and again, I'm not a doctor. I, you know, I, I had some... I had a bunch of chemistries and biologies and physics when I was in college, and, and it piqued an interest, and uh, I started studying these things and started looking at how, uh, how the body works and, and how God intricately designed us. And one of the things that I would find in Christian scientists that they would say almost every time was, you can't separate science and religion because they so masterfully are interwoven. You can try, you can get to a place where you're going, well, let's keep that separate and that separate. But eventually, if you keep digging, there's a place where you go, these two intersect and there's no way I can get around it. And so, yes, I think some of it absolutely is, we're talking two different things. We're talking spiritual versus physical. Um, but I, I certainly think that there's physical evidence that points us to the spiritual as well. And we don't want to go, you know, you don't want to, jump over bridges that that aren't there but at the same time uh, i think you you've got the evidence to show that that is indeed the case so um, so laminin was not um, developed by gorilla glue that's right not gorilla glue yes yeah um although it, that's some strong stuff i'll give it that uh but uh <laughs> yeah total rabbit trail here 
Did y'all hear about the lady who used Gorilla Glue in her hair as gel? <laughs> and she couldn't get it out, and she sued Gorilla Glue for using Gorilla Glue. And so they had to start printing on there, do not use as a hair product. I just laughed out loud. I was like, seriously, somebody decided, hmm, I think I'm going to spray that in my hair, see if it'll hold. And, I mean, she never had to fix her hair again. I'll tell I'll give her that. Like, that stuff was not coming out. Like, shave the head kind of thing. Uh, it, Yes. To get it out. To get it out of her hair and off. Yeah, you would think. I don't know how the. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it was stuck on. Anyway, that's a total rabbit trail. Has nothing to do with. It's not in my notes at all, by the way. But uh, very, very funny. All right, so let's turn a little bit just to some uh, apologetics, and I and this is I need your dialogue on this. I I don't want to dominate by just kind of telling you. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit, though. One of the things that I think is important, again, as we hear about how all of these things kind of are interwoven together, uh, how do we communicate that with somebody who is um, an unbeliever, especially? Somebody who would say, I don't even believe there is a God. I don't believe the God exists. Um, And I, I know, let's put it into context of where we are. We're in the Bible Belt of the South, right? And so rarely do I run into people who would say, I don't believe there's a God at all. Most people say, well, I believe there's God, but I'm not really going to, you know, let's not get all crazy about it. You know, let's, uh, so, so how do we kind of dialogue about this? How, how do we look at the magnificence of God in the sense of somebody who may even acknowledge God, but not have surrendered their life unto the Lord, making him the Lord of their life? How do we begin to dialogue then and communicate a message of hope through Jesus Christ, even by using some of these things, because I'm a firm believer that I, you know, we can give you, a, I can give you a bunch of information, and you can walk away and go, "Woo, that was good, fun." But I want to ask the question, "What now? What do you do with it now that you have it?" Um, and and really putting it into context, how does this, out of what we've talked about, really play into Matthew 28 and the Great Commission? Because I think if you really boil it down, what Jesus was saying to his disciples and what he's saying to us. Yes, we want to live in Christ, but living in Christ does mean that we are to be uh, representatives. We're to be the ambassadors. Paul calls us that in Colossians. He says we're to be the ambassadors of what you know. Jesus told his disciples, go and make disciples. You've been discipled. Go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we always forget that last little phrase, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you to do. How do we do that with this? How do we? How does that translate for us? Um, so, I want to look at a question came up last week. Romans chapter one, verses uh, verse 16, 18, Really, uh, somebody asked the question: How do we balance Romans one and the Great Commission? You know what Romans one eighteen? Let's read it real quick, just so we kind of understand. This is the famous passage that people will go to and say. Even if we don't tell everybody about Jesus, there's enough knowledge for them to know about Jesus. Okay? That's, that's, that's kind of the, the, that's what they go to here in Romans 1. We're going to see if Romans 1 actually tells us that or not. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God, honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creeping things. So it begs the question, uh, does the passage actually tell us that if we don't, if, if we are not ambassadors and faithful, and this is not just us in this room, I mean, this is the whole this is the Christian community. These are those who are called by God with a great commission to go forward. If we don't do that, will God make himself known anyway? Will God do what he's going to do without, with or without us? Um, it, it requires us to ask the question, what can be known? So you notice that in Romans 1? He says, what can be known for his visit, in verse 20, for his visible attributes, namely... His eternal power can be known. His divine nature can be known. They have clearly perceived ever, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the creation of the world can be known. you got three things that are known there. Now, there's been arguments back and forth, back and forth over many years. All the way, let's date it all the way back to probably 1500, especially you can get readings from Calvin and Luther and all those, all those reformers who would say, what does this passage actually mean for us in an understanding of God? Calvin actually holds, John Calvin actually holds what might often be called the gospel exclusivism position. He says, it is an acknowledgement that God reveals certain truths about himself to everyone and that this revelation is sufficient to account for God's condemnation of people who by their wickedness suppress the truth. But, he would believe that it is insufficient to save since additional particular revelation concerning God's promised Redeemer is necessary for saving faith. So what did John Calvin say? He says, yes, this passage is good to show that there is in fact a God and that it is uh, that, that God himself in creation reveals himself enough that we don't have excuse to say, in the atheist world, for instance, that there is no God. We can't look around and say, because we see creation, we see the things that he has made, we're given sufficient knowledge to say God exists. But what Calvin would say is, and which I, I tend to lean on, is that it's not sufficient knowledge of Jesus. I don't know of too many people, at least I've never heard the story, of the person who is out in the middle of nowhere and they look up and they acknowledge God and then all of a sudden they acknowledge Jesus died on a cross for me and I should be saved and I should submit my life to him. That Paul says later on, how will they know unless they have been told, right? How will they know unless they hear? And so we, I don't want to blow up Romans 1 and say, because I think a lot of times we use it, uh, just to be honest, we use it as an excuse, as Christians, to say, well, if I don't do what God's called me to do, I don't do the work of going to make disciples and proclaiming the gospel, well, God will just take care of it because of creation. I think there is a sense where we can say, yes, I acknowledge there is a God. 
There's, a, there's an agnostic for you. I acknowledge there's, there's God. I don't know anything about God. I don't want to give Him too much credit, but I'll acknowledge that there's a creator of some sort or something greater than me. I mean, take for instance, the, if you've ever been in Alcoholics Anonymous or seen their, their, their stuff, acknowledging one of their, I think it's number six, if I remember right, four or six, somewhere around there, is it says that you got to acknowledge a creator and one who's greater than you. I was really good friends with a guy uh, when we lived in Florida who was a recovering alcoholic for some 30 years. He had not touched alcohol. And we would talk about church things all the time. And I would ask him, Does he, what, what is your knowledge of Jesus? And he would say, well, I'm not necessarily there on Jesus, but I'm very much a believer in the AA. I, I, I understand there's a creator. And so we'd, ha- we'd have these dialogues of how can you, so there's a creator. What does the creator do? What's the purpose of a creator if it wasn't to, to eventually redeem fallen creation, as the scripture says? And he would say, well, I'm not ready to go there yet, but I'll acknowledge that there's a God. I'll acknowledge that there's something. He wouldn't even say God, actually. He would say, I'll acknowledge there's something greater than me. So there's what I believe Romans, and, and I'll, I'll hang on the back of John Calvin because he's, uh, he's pretty stout. I'll jump on his back and say, I believe that Romans can absolutely give us a knowledge of God. But we cannot say it is sufficive to bring people to saving knowledge of Jesus. And so how will they know without us telling them? Then it goes back to Matthew 28, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus was talking local, a little bit broader, and all over. That was, that was the context. And so this need for, this, this urgency, if you will, of um, the, these missionary organizations that are looking at the, what they often call the 1040 window, and actually I think they've shrunk it now to the 1030 window, uh, because missionaries are, are actually legitimately saying, hey, we want to go tell them. We want to go to these tribes and say, hey, you've acknowledged. I mean, Paul walked in. You remember Paul when he walked into, in Acts, he walked into one of the churches, and I can't remember which church it is, but he walked in, and he said, I acknowledge that you, um, that you are religious people and that you acknowledge an unknown God. And what did Paul say? He said, I want to tell you about your unknown God. I want to tell you the God you can know. I think that's where... When we start talking about this kind of stuff, scientific type things, it allows us to have tools in a tool belt to say, let me, let me be equipped then to engage with somebody who might say, I don't believe in God or I'll acknowledge a creator, but how do I get further? How do I get more of that? And so it leads us back then to how the, the Great Commission molds uh, Paul's understanding in Romans 1 is that he would say, let's capitalize on the fact that they know. And then let's move into what they know and teach them what it means to acknowledge Jesus as Savior. So, thoughts on that? Comments? Dialogue with me a little bit. What, what do you think about that? What? There's a book called Visions and Dreams mm-hmm. about people in the Middle East who come to know Jesus through these visions and dreams. But it seems like a lot of the visions or dreams would send them to a particular person. That's right. It's the Paul story. I mean, I mean, Paul's knocked off his horse, right? He was blinded by Jesus, told to go to Damascus. Paul's going, what, I, somebody lead me to Damascus. And then as he gets there, then he, then it's then that he has told the gospel and his life is transformed and he's given sight again, right? So 
Um, absolutely can God work in the, and I don't think, we don't want to discredit that. That creation can absolutely point us to, hey, I want to know more about this, quote unquote, as in Acts, an unknown God. I'm going to acknowledge there's something there. Um, but we have to be, that's, I think that's why Paul told Timothy, you got to be ready to preach in season, out of season. You got to be ready to give an account um, because, you know, it's the, it's Philip and the Ethiopian in, uh, in Acts. Uh, Philip's walking along. This guy is reading Isaiah of all things. He's reading Isaiah about Jesus. And he said, and Philip says, do you know what you're reading? He said, how can I? Nobody's ever told me. Well, let me tell you, Philip says. And then he becomes a believer and they baptize him right there in the water and Philip vanishes. Not a cool story. But anyway, um, Catherine, you look like you've got something yeah. to say. Uh, at one point, <clears throat> early on in our history, we were the ones uh, sending um, missionaries out to mm-hmm. the world. But now the world is sending those missionaries back to us because they have grasped on something that we have just lost. Just plain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And the, the, the culture shift mm-hmm. in the United States has certainly changed. Mm-hmm. When I was in seminary, I had to argue... So the professor divided up the room and he said, well, this half to argue that, that the United States is a Christian nation and this half to argue that the United States is not a Christian nation. And you didn't have a choice which side you're on. You had to argue it as though this was well, this is what I believe. And mine was on, uh, I was on the side of not a Christian nation. And I thought, well, I've always thought it was somewhat of a Christian nation. How, how am I supposed to go against what I think? And then I started researching and realizing the more the further we move away from God, it there, there is no evidence oftentimes of the United States being a... We're a post-Christian nation, I believe. Um, and so, yes, missionaries are coming back into the United States saying, hey, the things you taught us, you've forgotten. We've forgotten our first love. We've forgotten uh, if, in fact, the United States was majority Christian at one point. It's certainly not that now. Um, there's a majority of people who might attend church now. I think we're maybe it's still at 51%, if I remember right. Uh, we just barely got it. But just because, I mean, we all know going to church doesn't make us a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a cheeseburger, right? So um, we got to, there, there's more to it than that. Absolutely. We have to, I heard a preacher one time say, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Uh, and we need others to preach it to us too, so that we can continue to be walking in that. Um, yes. I think election plays 
pretty good role in this. Oh, absolutely. In, in that we're not called to try to discriminate ourselves who the Holy Spirit's going to be working in, but as we talk to that person, uh, I guess the fruit of the Spirit will be, be shown as to whether or not they will receive what you have to offer. Sure, yeah. And then the Spirit directs you to seek further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. I think Romans 8 and 9 really point us to that. I actually had a conversation with somebody just recently about that, saying how, because he was asking the question about election, predestination, saying, you know, if God's predestined, if God has elected, and he knows who is going to come to faith in him and who is not, why am I, what am I doing? You know, what's my purpose? And I looked at him and I said, do you know? And he said, no. And I said, well, there's your purpose. You don't know the person you're talking to, whether God's going to effectually call them or not. You don't know the person that the Lord's going to send the Holy Spirit and convict their heart and draw them. And so our call is not to play God. Our call is to to be the image bearers of God, to say, hey, I'm going to meet so-and-so on the street. I have no idea if they're going to come to faith or not, but I'm going to be faithful in sharing the gospel so that they have an opportunity. And then we'll let God do the rest. I'm, I don't want to play that part. I'm, no, thank you. Uh He's he, he's yeah he's got that handled right so yeah you're absolutely right and Paul would go on to say that obviously in Romans yeah um, you know all all this science mm-hmm. that I know I have been asked how do you explain from this the existence of God and I heard I don't have an original thought so I heard this from someone else um, I love that that's half of my life is <laughs> non-original thoughts so uh, it's hard to explain faith you know it's yeah. hard to prove faith that's why it's faith yeah so I sort of cop out on that with that as an answer often sure and I don't think I think you, yes because we can say at some point that there is a place where we just have to say I can show you everything you need to see but I can't convince you. That's God doing the work. And and that is you putting, and that is the Holy Spirit again, as I said in my sermon, wooing us and drawing us and convicting us and showing us. I don't get to play the Holy Spirit. So I can just say, hey, part of it is faith. Um, and and we get a little squirmy and uncomfortable when we say blind faith. You know, you know I, I'm not advocating for blind faith, but there is certain parts of faith that you go, I'm not going to get that one until I get to heaven. I'm not going to get that one until I get there and say, hey, I'm going to need you to shed some light on this because you never showed me while I was while I was in the human form. Uh, now I'm here in your likeness. Uh, I hope I remember all those, by the way. I just I think they'll all just come uh, come to knowledge at, 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 in that moment, but we'll see. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so true. Um, yeah. Um, well, I hope that, um, and I'm going to wrap up uh, a little early today just because we've got to go get vested and get ready for the next one and do a, a little prayer time. So um, I hope that you've got something out of this. Again, it wasn't my intention to say, hey, I've got all the answers. It is it is my intention to kind of just show you some of the things that I've studied and some of the things that continue to, to lead me into the presence of God to go, wow, how awesome is he? How magnificent is the God that we worship? And and to actually lead us in a place where we'd say, uh, when we walk into this place on Sunday morning, 
that he's so much greater than this place. He's so much greater than that place. He is, he is, um, you know, and so it deepens our worship of God. It takes us to a place where we just go, I don't get it all, God, but man, what I do get is awesome and amazing. And he continues to amaze me. And I hope he does you as well. So, um, so thank you all for engaging with me. I want to pray for you. Any last thoughts or comments before we close up? This morning, thank you for engaging with me. Uh, if you're interested in this, I'm happy to share this PowerPoint with you. If that's something you'd be interested in, you can email me and I'll send it over to you. Uh, and uh, hopefully you can discern through the, the PowerPoint doesn't have all my notes, but it does have enough that you can kind of say, oh yeah, I remember that. So um, it's um, hopefully it can be encouraging to you. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that you call us by name. And Lord, as you promise us that you you will hold us in your hands and that, um, Lord, and the things that go on in this earth that we don't, we don't have to fear because we have a God who loves us and cares about us and that has a greater purpose than any of these things. And so, Lord, as we've seen that through science and through astronomy and through the various things that we've looked at over these last three weeks, four weeks, God, would you continue to amaze us and continue to draw us into just how awesome you are. Bring us to that place where we worship you in all your splendor and all your majesty, all your glory. And again, give you thanks for this time that we've had together, for your word and how it shows us uh, your different attributes and how it... Um, leads us to repentance each and every day. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.